0: The Innovators Network. Kim McNicholas on innovation. Spotlighting successful entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, and industry experts. Their stories and insights can help you become better informed, better educated, and a better investor. Your host is Emmy Award-winning anchor, reporter, and writer-producer, Kim McNicholas. Kim has been a journalist at Forbes Magazine, a Fox News Channel contributor, vetted more than 3,000 startups, and has been a mentor for entrepreneurs around the globe. Now. Jim McNicholas on innovation.
1: Hi, everyone. I am excited today to be joined by Dan Rose. He is the CEO of LimFlow. They have a new technology that could be that Hail Mary for patients that the doctors have said there's no other option but amputation. This is part of our grandeur series, Vascular Spotlight, in partnership with Vascular Cures and The Weight of My Heart. Welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: The concept behind limb flow is really um, taking an endovascular, a minimally invasive approach to um, bypassing the blockages down near the ankle and into the foot and restoring blood flow as you would perform an angioplasty or an atherectomy.
2: That's right. That's right. It's a new approach. It's a a new uh, technique. The tools in a way are very similar to the tools that are used, uh, today to perform what we think of as quite traditional, uh, uh treatments for, um, uh, lower limb, uh, disease and, and critical ischemia, you know, trying to open up the arteries so that blood can get to foot and, and heal the wounds, uh, and relieve the pain. So we use similar tools, but we, uh, channel the blood through the vein, which normally takes blood back to the heart, but we use it to push blood down to the foot. So, uh, in those patients where the blockages are too great and you really can't open them up anymore to get blood flow to the foot in your arteries, we're saying, well, let's divert into the vein. And, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, the best analogy to understand what we're talking about is. We've all been trying to get to the airport, you know, driving along and we get stuck in traffic and you look across the median and you say, well, wait a minute. That road over there is empty, right? Nobody's on that road. I know it runs in the wrong direction, but it definitely goes to the airport, right? And, uh, if I could only cross the median and drive to the airport, maybe I could get there today. And, uh, and so uh, we know arteries and veins often run parallel. So, uh, so we use the vein instead of the artery.
1: This is a little bit different than, let's say, the, the PQ bypass system, which is a similar approach except above the knee where they actually um, have, they, they take over only um, a few lanes of traffic in that vein. And you're saying in, in this approach down below the knee, that you want to take over the entire vein, what happens to the blood flow um, leading back to the heart at that point? Is that minimized?
2: Uh, that, that's, that's a great question. So PG bypass is doing something similar, but different, you know? Uh, so they use the vein to go around the blockage in the artery. So they're going to go out of the artery into the vein and then back into the artery. We go out of the ve- uh, out of the artery into the vein, and we use that vein, and we actually use that vein to push blood all the way down to your toes. So uh, we're not going back into the arteries because in our patients below the knee, the arteries are completely blocked. There's nothing, there's no way of opening them. Uh, there's no way of restoring flow. So yeah, it's a little bit different a- approach, uh, but the fact is that you have multiple veins for every artery. Uh, you know, many people don't know that, that you have, uh, you know, more than, usually more than one vein, sometimes two, sometimes three for every artery. So you have a lot of extra capacity that is not used if you take one away. It's been traditional in medicine to use uh, uh, veins to do, uh, for example, coronary bypass surgery. The bypasses were often harvested saphenous veins from your leg. So... Uh, There's a history of taking veins and applying them to another uh, solution. And so we're doing that here.
1: Clear back to the 1900s early 1900s. Yeah, this is an idea that was first uh, thought about a long time ago. Uh,
2: And uh, people did, you know, a few surgical procedures here and there. But the challenge was that you needed to create, uh, you know, really long, large incisions to do it surgically. And then in patients who have struggled to heal the wounds on their feet, they've got new wounds to heal, right? And so what we've done is tried to make tools that can be used, uh, you know, like classical endovascular techniques with only, you know, two tiny punctures. And so, uh, you know, you can really do it without creating all the extra burden for the patient and also do it rather quickly.
1: I was talking to a doctor with uh, an organization called Modern Modern Vascular. They have about a dozen uh, office based labs across the country in some of the most vulnerable areas. And the doctor says, you know, they really, failure is not an option for them. They want to save every single patient's foot that goes into one of their facilities. And they have literally. Um, taken a manual approach, right? You were, were talking to to try and restore that flow. And when I told them that limb flow existed, they're like, oh my God, they're actual real tools that will help us to reduce trauma yeah. as we try and save the foot.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's this is a, a real privilege to work on this project because everywhere we go, uh, we, we run across people that are really in need, uh, who are, uh, you know, really, whether physicians are saying, the only thing we can offer is amputation. And, you know, that's terrible for the patient. It's terrible for the healthcare system. And it's super frustrating, uh, for the physicians, of course, because they became physicians to help people. And, it, you know, when you get to the end and you say, well, I, I can't do anything more, it's very frustrating. So, uh, we're hoping to provide that kind of, um, uh, final, uh, solution, as it were, that can get the limb reperfused, get the wound healed and keep the patient mobile. And, uh, and with a high quality of life. And that's that's what we wake up and do and in the company. We talk about no leg left behind. You know, we don't want to, we want to fight for every leg. And, uh, and and that's what we're trying to do.
1: And this is a really good opportunity just because with no leg left behind, I bet that's music to the ears of Tony and Derek, um, two to friends who are in, um, you know, some groups online because Derek has... Um, you know, faced amputation and he felt as though hospital systems really were leaving him behind and not keeping up with new technologies and didn't care about saving his foot. Right, Derek?
0: That's right. That's the only option they gave me is just, you know, I mean, they told me I had pad and diabetes and all that. Um, All they did was just, you know, just immediately started hacking my toes off. You know, it gave me no other choices. And I found that very frustrating, you know, because I'm, I'm tired of getting things cut
2: off. <laughs> I can totally understand. I mean, it, it, is, it is a real challenge that uh, access to care uh, for peripheral artery disease is, is limited still today. And, uh, and getting to the right person who has the right skill set and, and really the desire to really make the effort to save the leg, is, it's, it's not everywhere today. Uh, you know, there are great physicians all over the country, but, uh, but we can do better in terms of fighting for, uh, for, for lower limb and uh, in, in trying to make sure that you can keep your toes and keep your whole leg because uh, it's critical. It's not just about losing the leg. It affects your whole life, right? right. And, uh, and uh, you know, the longer you can stay mobile, uh, the better you'll be. And, and you know, that's just something we know. So we got to fight for it.
1: We do. And I, I think that this is going to be music to Tony's ears simply that... You're focusing initially on hospital systems. Hospital systems have, in the past few years, fallen behind in terms of advanced approaches to resolving uh, blood flow issues, especially in the lower extremities. You know, and then the foot in particular, and that's why they ended up turning to office-based labs. But you know, really, when you you talk to any patient, they think going to a large hospital. Is really the best place to go, and it's been counterintuitive. Actually, up till this point, where LimFlow is saying, "Hey, we're doing these in an inpatient on an inpatient basis, at least initially," and we're bringing these hospitals up to speed and giving them new tools to do what they couldn't do before.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's important to say, you know, so LimFlow is uh, is now uh, running a clinical trial. It's the second United States clinical trial uh, that we're running, and this one is to achieve FDA approval. So uh, in a clinical trial, you're very controlled about which patients you treat and how you follow them after they're treated to make sure that what we're doing is safe and that we can show we're having a positive effect on the patient. So we're in that process now, we're enrolling at uh, you know uh, 17 sites in the United States. And and our goal through that is ultimately to be able for the FDA to look at the data and say yes we think this is something that we can approve and can be used uh, on a routine basis. Uh, you know one of the things that you talk about is super critical to lymph flow, which is that we really are a catalyst for multidisciplinary care. We want that the physician who does the the, the procedure to be uh, wedded to really connected with the person doing the wound care afterwards, because oftentimes, you know, they're not working in concert. They're, they don't know what the other person is doing. And we really want that connection because that's when great care happens, when your diabetologist, you know, is talking to your wound care person, and talking to your interventionalist, your vascular surgeon. That's where the real magic happens. And then, you know, we can get patients the right care they need. And all the all the physicians who have the expertise and knowledge can really come together to say, yes, this is the best forward, best way forward. This is the right therapy. So we're we're working very hard at those 17 sites to kind of uh, crystallize that, to pull that together, and uh, and we see that as the path forward. And uh, you know, there are physicians out there and office-based labs who are working in that way as well.
1: I, I think it's a, a, important to know that you are you know, expecting to, um, move into office-based labs as well at some point, but at least for the clinical trial, starting out in hospitals, being able to follow the patient overnight, taking that extra precaution and, um, seeing how the patient, um, reacts in a 24 hour period is, is really important to collect that data, especially for, um, for long-term.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, uh, I think, uh, you know, clinical trials are designed to really look very hard at how a therapy affects a patient. And that's exactly correct. We want to be sure we really understand what we're doing. And then, you know, we can uh, ultimately uh, take that knowledge forward and in collaboration with the FDA, you know, start to get it out there, right? But, you know, uh, I mean, I think we've all seen, you know, uh, like waiting for vaccines for COVID, the same thing, right? It's really frustrating to wait but you have to wait because we need to know everything about it before we can move forward. And that's the situation we're in. We're hoping to finish the trial soon. And we're hoping, uh, you know, as early as, uh, you know, second half of, uh, of next year that we can finally begin to, to, to introduce this therapy on a broader basis in the United States.
1: I just like the idea that you're actually introducing this minimally invasive and very viable technology to the very same facilities that are literally um, putting amputation at the forefront in many cases as frontline treatment. So this is, I think, a, a, just a game changer within the hospital system to get them to open their eyes to newer options and realizing that, you know, helping people to live a better quality of life is, is really the way to go. And minimally invasive approaches uh, are, are the best frontline treatment for everyone. As as Derek told you just a few moments ago, that his frontline treatment was amputation in a very large, well-known um, hospital um, in, in the Midwest. And that was even before he was diagnosed officially for peripheral artery disease. So I, I think that this could help um, change the paradigm in a lot of facilities.
2: Yeah. And, and we're one of several companies who are trying to do this, right? The large medical device companies and new startups like us with different approaches for different aspects of the disease development. But we're all working on the same thing because, you know, uh, I mean, when I look around and think, you know, here we are in the third decade of the 21st century and our go to therapy at certain hospitals is just to take off the leg. I mean, this is, this is not what we should be doing. You know, we, we shouldn't, you know, we can, we can do amazing things with technology and, uh, and we really should be doing everything we can to take care of the people who need it. And, uh, and so that's part of our role. and that's, you know, we're playing a small part, but that's, that's part of it.
1: You were mentioning competition. Uh, is there anyone doing what you're doing aside from in a, in a, ma- on a manual basis for the lower limb, um, from the, um, lower calf into the foot?
2: no we're the only ones really focusing on this particular approach right now um and uh and you know i think uh i think once we prove it there'll be lots of people who try and chase this but uh we'll be far ahead and yeah. uh, and uh, we're we're you know we, we we've actually spent uh continue to uh even though we have a system we're working with we have the next generation system in the pipeline so it's a continual process of innovation we'll never stop
1: you already have CE mark, so this is worth mentioning. You've been at this for a while.
2: That's right. The company was founded in 2012, and we did our first uh, first patient in uh, uh, 20, end of 2013, and uh, and since then we've done about 250 patients. And uh, most of them in the past couple of years, um, because we did a few and then we developed a bunch of tools and then we did a few more and we developed a bunch of tools. And then that's generally the way it works until you get the right system and the right approvals to move forward. So uh, that's what we did.
1: In November, you released your first set of 12-month data. Can you discuss what you, your findings were?
2: Yeah. So this was a, a, a study on 32 patients. Again, very similar to the bigger trial we're doing now but, uh, uh, and all here in the United States. And what we saw was, uh, we, you know, the, the biggest measurement we use is amputation free survival. So, uh, it's a very simple measurement, you know, is the patient still alive and do they still have the limb, you know, that we worked on? So, uh, you know, you don't have to give them a blood test or anything. You just have to have them show up and you can see, uh, if they 've uh, they 've kept their limb and and, and and kept their life and uh, and so we saw seventy percent of patients at the end of one year still uh, with their limb and still alive and uh, we know that in this patient population it would have been you know, probably less than 30, maybe even less than 20% align with their lineup on here. So a huge impact on these patients. And even more importantly, or as importantly, we saw 75% of those patients with their their wound completely healed. And we know complete wound healing is really important for stopping having to go into wound care all the time and closing that uh, open opportunity for infection. Uh, that often is what leads to amputation, so those two measurements gave us the confidence that uh, that you know uh, we 're doing the right thing, and gave the FDA confidence to let us do a much larger trial so um, so yeah, we were tremendously excited because again uh, um, you know the patients enrolled in our trial are you know almost indicated directly for amputation as a primary treatment, so if we can stop that you know, uh, we're, we're doing the right thing.
1: We know every doctor will try something new, especially when it comes to uh, vascular specialists. They don't want to be left behind. But getting them to try it and getting them to adopt it are two different things because uh, there are a lot of different factors that may be involved. There could be standard protocols and hospital systems. There could be, you know, and this is a prominent one, which is vendor relationships, already existing vendor relationships, especially in these larger facilities, long-term Um Relationships. What is your go to market strategy and what obstacles have you or do you expect to face as you try to scale around the globe?
2: So, uh, as you say, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, introducing a new medical therapy is a complex business. So it's a lot more complex than many, uh, many other areas because we have, of course, a lot of regulation. We have a lot of rules to follow. And that's absolutely correct because we're dealing with, you know, putting things in people's bodies and they keep them for the rest of their life and it has to be done with the highest level of quality and safety. Uh, so there, there, there are a lot of uh, training and education that involves in starting a new site. And so we plan to uh, leverage the sites that are already up and running in experience. We had about 60 sites actually apply to be uh, part of the trial. So we have 60 sites waiting to start with, uh, which, you know, will give kind of, you can imagine at least one site in every state, you know, where, where someone can go and, and get room flow. Uh, the other the other thing that's a little more nuanced, but I think we all can appreciate it, is uh, uh Medicare, what we call uh CMS, uh has uh recently issued some new rules with regards to reimbursement. So and these new rules for reimbursement involve uh breakthrough technologies, which the FDA can say this is a breakthrough technology. There is no treatment that this that addresses what this technology is trying to address. And uh, and so Wimplo is one of those breakthrough technologies designated by the FDA. And that means that uh, CMS, uh, Medicare has now said that they will fund those technologies as soon as they're approved. And uh, this is a major step forward, it's very new. It's only in the past uh, uh, couple of years that that's been the case. So that really helps because oftentimes you have something new, but if there's no uh, way for the hospital to pay for it, right? Then you're not going to get it because we all know hospitals have to, um, you know, they're, they're, they, they, they need to uh, get reimbursed for the, for the things that they do. So uh, so we feel like we've got all the pieces in place to make sure that uh, access for uh, you know, the average American, once we have approval, is there, you know, uh, maybe not, you know, everywhere in the first year, but we're progressively making it more available for people over time.
1: Yeah, reimbursement. I was going that was going to be my next question was in that regard, because I know that other technologies such as Shockwave have had um, some initial issues in getting um, mass adoption just simply because of the lack of reimbursement. So it's I, I think that you've really hit a niche when you find where there's no other option to save a limb and you have that Hail Mary option. Um, they, no matter what, they should reimburse it. They should give every person that last ditch effort to for that better quality of life. Exactly,
2: and, and that's what this program is designed to do specifically for technologies where there is no treatment today. And uh, and so we really fit the bill and uh and we're excited to take opportunity to uh of that new new world
1: in terms of training and i've been a part of uh different technologies being adopted by doctors and i know that Some doctors are more skilled at adopting new technologies than others. Do you have any interesting stories to share, um, you know, in your struggles in trying to train doctors in certain aspects? Or has there been a a struggle with maybe a certain aspect of training that ultimately resulted or was the catalyst for maybe a change in design of your your product uh, along the line?
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I love it because it's what I do and I've been doing it for over 20 years. So I love medical device development and procedure development. And uh, and so we have a few of those aspects with Limplow. I mean, uh, uh, one of the interesting things is that the pedal veins, so we use the veins down in the foot really aren't used for anything else in medicine. Right. They're they, they're there, but doctor probably hasn't thought about them since, you know, first year medical school because you know, unless you're looking at it every day, you know, you're not familiar with it. So we have to go through teaching them or actually reminding them about what veins are there and where they're trying to drive the blood and how exactly to utilize them, which is which is interesting to play that role. Um, and we have made some pretty substantial procedure development uh steps. Uh, uh, as part of our uh, experience. So we now uh, make our lower limb puncture actually in the foot rather than at the ankle, and that has reduced procedure time substantially just because you're working with the valves that are in your veins and not against the valves that are in your veins. so. Uh, again, small steps make a big difference and, uh, and training and education is a big part of what we have to do. Uh, and we will continue to learn. I mean, it's a, it's a process, you know, uh, and that's true of every new technology and therapy that's been ever introduced in the medicine.
1: And so for patients who are launching, um, what questions should they ask their doctor, um, to determine if, if this could be an option for them?
2: Well, I think the most important thing uh to do is to make sure that you get uh if if you uh if if your referring physician believes you have ischemia, you really need to get a vascular consult. Uh you know, in the sense that no one should be going to amputation without getting an angiogram to see what the blood flow is in your foot. Because as long as you haven't had someone look at the blood flow in your foot, you can't see if there's an opportunity to improve the blood flow in your foot. And uh uh, it's a little bit, it, you know, it used to be half of patients going to amputation without even getting a vascular consult. I think it's a little better now, but still too many patients aren't even getting access to the most uh, simple interventions to open blood to the foot. So that's the first thing I would say, is to make sure you are getting in front of a physician who can open your blood vessels. And from there, being an advanced center that really specializes in limb salvage and working on uh, lower limbs regularly and isn't just doing a couple procedures a year, but is doing hundreds of procedures a year, is probably the best indicator that you're in the right place. Because the more you do something like everything in life, the more you play piano, the better you're going to be at playing piano. The more procedures you do uh, on the foot and the lower limb, the better you're going to be at it. So try and find a place that's doing a lot of lower limb work. And I think uh, you'll be headed in the right direction.
1: And that's the advice I also give a a lot of patients overall, because... They go into a hospital doctor, for example, and the doctor says, Okay, well, we need to go in and do angioplasty. Well, turns out that the doctor literally is only trained to perform an endovascular procedure and send the wires and catheters and even possibly an atherectomy device just to the knee. They are not trained in dealing with the smaller vessels below the knees. So I say, even though you do have, let's say a blockage in your thigh, in your uh, superficial femoral artery, um, you really do want to think long-term and make sure you do have a doctor that not only knows how to do that, but also can ensure that you have blood flow running all the way to your feet. Because no matter what, they need to do that bullish chase in the end. They need to check the runoff uh, inflow and outflow, right? And so um, this is just I I think that this uh, is going to actually make um, make it almost a moot point, because I think more and more doctors inside a hospital facility are going to be more aware and are not going to be want to be left behind their colleagues in terms of that training below the knee.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you really want to be. You want to be somewhere where, uh, you know, again, this is this is routine for them. It's very unique for you. You're only going to have it once, hopefully, but you want it to be routine for them because they've done hundreds and they really know what's best for you as an individual. Because everybody has, you know, their disease uh, evolution is a bit different. Their their anatomy is a bit different. I mean, you want someone who's seen everything. Just like when you go to get heart surgery, you'd really shop around if you could right, to find the best. They're not all the same, you know, uh, I mean, they're, they're surgeons of different capabilities and and uh, people should be looking for, uh, for sites that really are centers of excellence that they can.
1: Yeah. Yes, and not just looking online at the bought and paid for lists of doctors, um, top doctors, because they really need to focus on discovering those questions to ask their specific doctor at their specific facility um to determine their proven skill set, not just by reviews, not just by lists, proven skill set. Learn those questions you need to ask your doctor when choosing the right one for you.
2: Yeah. And I and I think that's part of uh, you know, fighting for your limb, you know, and I think uh I think the doctors, you find the right doctors, you can fight for your limb, and it's important that the patient wants to do it too, because there's a lot of compliance to therapy that's important to take your medicine and to be compliant to wound care, and uh, because it's a collaboration. It's not going to be easy, but if you want to keep your limb, you have to really commit. You know, and, uh, and I think it, it, it runs both ways, of course.
1: You know. I want to turn it over before we we finish here to Tony and Derek to see if they have any questions. Uh, hi, Dan, and hi, Kim. Thank you very much
3: for having us today. Um, we're very grateful for you to be here, and we know that Kim has been our warrior. And I like what you said, Dan, about really knowing what the doctor does. i I know when I got my hip replaced, I remembered my uh, surgeon saying to me, Specifically, he looked in my face and said, "This is all I do." He was letting me know this is what I do on a daily basis. you know, and i I did my research on him. I do have some questions though um one of the questions is being a diabetic, um a lot of diabetics, including Derek, has microvascular problems and some venous insufficiency problems, and I'm wondering how the limb flow would work with someone in a case like that.
2: So that's that's really interesting. So I had this question earlier today from actually a, quite a well-known uh cardiologist uh, who's asking me about venous insufficiency. So um we have we need to answer those questions in the clinical trial. Um you know, it's important for the veins to be healthy uh you know uh for for treatment with limb flow. Oftentimes, you know, the lower limb venous uh disease is a little bit different than upper limb uh, venous disease, so above the knee and below the knee most of our patients despite having uh, um, you know really uh, really advanced disease in their arteries don't have any venous disease so these are two totally different mechanisms you don't get calcium and plaque in your veins you only get it in your arteries okay so normally we're dealing with a healthy venous structure and a very diseased arterial side so, uh this is you know uh, again I, I can't answer that without seeing all the clinical data at the end but normally that's one reason we've decided to use the veins is because as i described with the analogy of the 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 uh, you know highway that side is is open and and relatively uh available to be used uh you know diabetic um uh, diabetes does lead to uh, microvascular disease, and that's one of the reasons that patients get to the point that they uh, they need lymphoma because um, uh, seventy about seventy percent of the patients in our trial have diabetes, and so uh, it's quite a common uh, underlying factor in why their disease uh, has advanced to the point it, it has. And we've again had had uh, you know as, as we talked about with the one year data from Promise One, very uh, a lot of success so far in those, in those patients. So,
1: you know, it's interesting that you mentioned um, Tony venous insufficiency uh, because I have it. And they said, I just have a few faulty flaps. And I I'm curious if someone has just a few faulty flaps um, that would make it easier for lymph flow. I would think, because um, you have to go in there and you have to take out those flaps, right. When you, when you want to change from outflow to inflow.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, we, we do have to remove, uh, in the vein we're going to use, we have to remove the valves, which, you know, keep blood from going, uh, uh, you know, running, you know, your, uh, what's the best analogy. So your foot, the vein in your foot acts like a pump. So every time you take a step, you're squeezing that vein and the blood is being pushed up towards your heart. But the valves keep the blood from flowing back down. So as you go up, it's like a ladder. So at every step, there's another valve that keeps the blood constantly moving up. As you press, as the venous system squeezes, the blood goes back to the heart, but it can't go back to your foot, right? Otherwise, we have like, you know, giant purple feet. Uh, So... um, uh, when you have some venous insufficiency, some of that blood can go backwards, and so in order to make the blood go all the way down to the the, the foot, we essentially use what's called a valvulatone to destroy those flaps, those valves, and and so um, that's a key part of what we do. Having you know one or two be insufficient wouldn't really make a big difference in the complexity of the procedure, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's a it's an important aspect of what we do is taking out those those valves.
3: Is there any uh, protein that can adhere to the catheter or the stenting that's put in that would block that after you've opened it up? You know, like maybe... So for sure,
2: Oomphlo is a stent like every stent, right? And when you put a stent in, your body responds to having a foreign object in and typically it grows over over top of the stent. We call it endothelialized, but you can imagine it puts a... A layer of cells to cover the stent, because it doesn't like having objects exposed to blood flow, right It wants a smooth surface so the blood can flow right past it without causing thrombus adhering uh, and and you know causing something that would cause you a problem later on uh so You know, lympho stents have have a good track record uh, with this, but it's something we're looking at in the study. But we are no different than every stent in the sense that, uh, you know, that's a that's a biological process that, uh, you know, just occurs whenever you put a blood, uh, uh, put a device inside the body.
1: Have you thought to maybe try a DCB? inside the, the stent after the procedure just a little dcb in there i don't think that they're they're mostly above the knee though for they're the di-
2: approved for, but there's no dcb approved for use below the knee right yeah. now but typically if there is a problem uh um with some uh stenosis as we call it some uh, cl- uh um how would you say increasing uh obstruction you know narrowing of the vessel we just go in with the normal normal balloon and uh, you know, just like an angioplasty, classic—it's classic angioplasty. You just blow it up and open it up a bit and and restore the blood flow
1: i see the world's smallest dcb in your future to go down there
2: well, that's a whole nother project you know <laughs> and uh,
1: hopefully i'll get
2: on to the next one after we make this one a success but yeah and uh and there are some great tools coming down the, coming down the pike uh you know and lots of people are making heroic efforts to develop new technology in this space so uh and every little bit helps you know
1: and your, your final question uh tony yeah, I was wondering
3: about the Medicare part of it. I know you said that they would be uh reimbursing the hospitals, but I know um you said that they you'd be doing it in some outside facilities. Would they be covered as well? Like if if we had to go to an outside facility? You mm-hmm. asked some really
2: smart questions, I have to say. These are these are these are good ones. And uh uh so right now we focused on inpatient because that's where our trial is being done. What we're now starting to focus on how we would make that available, or try to agree with with CMS to make it available for treatment and outpatient. Uh, but that's a that's a complex thing around what the indication for the patients is, and obviously working with the government to uh, establish reimbursement is is often a multi-year, really long process. So, uh, but we're working on it. We certainly want to make it available where it's appropriate, uh, and in line with the uh, approvals we have. But, uh, I think, uh, you know, there's a big move, uh, just in general within medicine to do more things outpatient. You probably see this all over and the unfortunate experience of the pandemic has accelerated that just like we're talking on zoom now, you know, I think, uh, uh, hospitals are quite eager to, to to move things outpatient as much as possible, uh, so I think I think it's something we'll see in the future for sure.
1: Thank you so much, Dan. Um, it, we really appreciate your efforts in in trying to save a life and limb. And the next steps beyond that is really overall long term, you know, patency and durability. Um, those are going to be interesting studies going forward to see if this is something that. Um, can be as durable as, as some invasive bypass procedures um, in, in the long term.
2: Absolutely. We we're, we're look forward to producing the data and we're, uh, we're really excited to see the results and, uh, and to take this forward.
0: This has been Kim McNicholas on innovation. Connect with Kim on Facebook forward slash Kim McNicholas or email Kim McNicholas at gmail.com and join us again for Kim McNicholas on innovation. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network.